Uh, thank you again. Uh, thanks so much for being here and for, for coming and for um, being the church and, and bringing the church in here today. Um, it is uh, good to be here. It's good to be back. Uh, Olivia and myself, our family, uh, we missed being here last week. We're grateful to worship in, in another part of the country, uh, but definitely uh, really, really, really good um, to be here. Um, sad to, to miss Sundays, um, but we're obviously uh, definitely grateful to see that um, worship didn't miss a beat. I was talking to some people um, about last week and was listening to uh, the message on uh, online. I just really encouraged to know that um, God was working and, and speaking through uh, Eugene um, to minister to our hearts and to uh, rally us to, towards uh, sowing and, and, and reaping um, the harvest that God has called us to. Um, we are in this the third week here of a, a series as we talk about um, our name harvest and what this means as we look at the biblical imagery of of harvest um, throughout the Bible. Uh, we don't have time to to unpack every single um, passage of scripture that talks about it, but um, I want to conclude this this brief series by looking at, at Psalm 126 and, and asking a very simple question today. Uh, we've talked about the law of sowing and reaping. We've talked about how the harvest is plentiful and Jesus sends us forth into the harvest field. But the question to, I, I ask is this, in light of the fact that we only reap when we sow, and we will reap what we sow. What do we do in those moments of life where we feel like we've been sowing and sowing and sowing and sowing, and it just seems like there's been no reaping in our lives? Where there have been people, there have been things, there have been ministries that we've been just pouring our lives into, uh, just soaking our pillow with tears over uh, the sake of somebody that we're praying for, the sake of some group of people that we've been entrusted that has been entrusted to us, whether it's, it's a house church or a group of students, whether it's a, a college campus or um, people that you're, you're praying for to come to, to faith in Christ. What do you do when you've been investing into people and sowing and sowing and sowing and sowing, but there's never seems to be a time of reaping and just feel like, I don't know if this is going to happen, if it's ever going to happen. I don't know if it's worth it to continue going on. If you've ever asked uh, questions like that, uh, then that Psalm 126 is particularly uh, helpful for these kinds of situations. I hope and, and pray that we've been challenged through these last two weeks as we've been looking into the Word of God to realize that there's nothing in this life more rewarding and fulfilling than to invest our lives into uh, the harvest field, than to give our lives for the sake of other people, to sow, not to gratify the flesh, but to sow to gratify the Spirit, and to realize that as we do that for ourselves, we do that for other people, that there is an overflow of joy and there's a reaping that is to come. But what do we do in those moments where it just feels like it's so difficult, and I don't know if, it's ever, if I'm ever going to see this side of heaven, uh, the fruit of my labor and the reward for all that I've been giving my life to. Uh, Psalm 126 is a song of ascent, and I want to read this for us. And as we do, um, just hear some thoughts on the harvest once again. Psalm 126, a song of ascent. It says, When the Lord brought back the captives to Zion... We were like men who dreamed. Our mouths were filled with laughter, our tongues with songs of joy. Then it was said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us, and we are filled with joy. So restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. Those who sow in tears will reap with songs of joy. 
He who goes out weeping, carrying seed to sow, will return with songs of joy, carrying sheaves with him. This is God's word. The Song of Ascents from Psalm 120 to Psalm 134 is a series of 15 psalms that were sung by the Israelites, faithful, devoted believers in our God, as they were climbing up the mountain, going on their pilgrimage to Jerusalem for one of the annual feasts. And in order to make that arduous, difficult, painstaking trip a little bit easier, they would recite Psalms 120 through Psalm 134. And they would sing these songs to each other as a way of encouraging one another to remember what it is that we're living for, to remember why we're going, remember why we're doing the things that we do. And Psalm 126 is one of these jewels that is nestled in amongst these songs of ascents. Amidst that difficult journey, it was a song of joy. And in the, in the midst of Psalm 126, I want to just kind of point out four things that are helpful to us as we continue to labor for the harvest, especially when things get tough, especially when it feels like there's no reward, there's no fruit, and especially how we can do so with joy even in the midst of hardship. Four things. Here's the first thing. First thing is joy does not depend on, joy is not about what's going on right now. Joy is not about what's going on right now. Hey, what does that mean? If you read Psalm 126, just six short verses, you can tell that this psalm is all about joy. Four times in these six short verses, we read this word joy. It's trying to teach us about something as you climb up the mountain, as you go through pilgrimage, as you go through this journey, as you go through this trek, arduous and difficult as it may be, there is joy in the journey. And Psalm 126 is trying to teach us how we can find joy even in the midst of difficult times. And it's important because we realize that joy is not tied to our present circumstances. I think this is highly, this is important to me because I find joy difficult to come by at times. And I've always been, I've always been encouraged, inspired, drawn to people who in the midst of good times and in the midst of hard times, they can still find joy even when they've been laboring and working and there seems to be no result, no fruit to their endeavors. What is it about these people that causes this wellspring of joy to continue to rise even in the midst of dry, desert, barren times? What is it about that? One, is, one thing that we see is that they realize that joy is not tied to what's going on right now as they labor, as they give themselves. This is counterintuitive and it's countercultural because our culture constantly puts in our minds this idea that your joy and your happiness is contingent upon what's happening in your life right now. I, um, one of my pastoral mentors, um, Peter Tai, he teaches out at, at one of the uh, Trinity Seminary. Um, he explains it in this way. When you're young and, and you're not having a good day, what do your parents do in order to try and get your, uh, get your spirits up? Hey, what do they do? They take you to McDonald's. Why? You go, you go to McDonald's as a little kid, right? Five years old, six years old. You go to McDonald's and you're really excited. Why? Because you can get a happy meal. And the myth of McDonald's is that even if everything is going poorly in your life, if you get a happy meal, you can be happy. You remember this commercial? It came out a few years back. It was a McDonald's commercial, and there's two teams that are playing soccer. There's little kids, and there's one team. They're all big. They're, like, bigger. They're, like, nine years old, but they look like they're 15, and they're just spanking the other team. This team looks like they're, they're nine years old, but they look like they're six. Right? And they're getting defeated, and they're getting beat up and de- dejected as each time they kick a goal in it. Uh, the, 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 the little kids miss and the big kids make it. And it's just this, this utter annihilation of one team over another. And at the end 
of this game, you see this losing team and their heads are down. They're kicking at the ground. They're walking off. Some of them are crying. They're extremely sad because they couldn't win the game. And on the other side, you've got the heroes. You've got the champions. It was obviously a championship game because these winners are hoisting up their trophies and they're gloating and they're boasting. And they're taunting the other team. They're saying, losers. And this one guy does like this. He says, loser. And the other team is so dejected and so downtrodden. They just sit on their, with their hands on their chins like this, looking as they sit on the bleachers. And they're watching this other team celebrate their victory. And everything is going in slow motion throughout this commercial. It's like a minute-long commercial. I watched it last night just to inspire myself again. I was watching it on, on YouTube. And, and they're just boasting. The other team is so down. It's a terrible commercial until about 15 seconds towards the, uh, until the end, this one guy comes running, right? And he's got with him this whole big box of Happy Meals. And he's running and he bypasses the winning team and he goes to the losing team. And all of a sudden, this losing team is so sad. They're so depressed. All of a sudden, they jump up and they're cheering, They're laughing. They're high-fiving each other as they get these Happy Meals. And all of a sudden, in the same way that the other team was hoisting up their trophy, these guys are hoisting up their Happy Meals. And all of a sudden, they are the true winners because they've got their Happy Meal. And even though everything was poor around them, they've got their Happy Meals and they're celebrating. But here's my question to them. What happens after they finish that Happy Meal and they realize that they're losers still? What happens? They've got their happy meal. They've got their toy, and it's great, but they realize, oh, my gosh, I've got this toy already. Or they realize that this toy is going to break after they play with it for a couple days. What happens after that? This is the myth of McDonald's is that your joy is tied to the present moment, happy meals. And then you realize, you know what? This isn't going to cut in, so you get older, right? This is what happened in my age. For those of us who are older in our congregation, we know you had a bad day at school. What do you do? You go home to your Atari, right? And you bust out your what? Your joystick. Booyah. All of a sudden, you've got joy again because everything is right when you're dominating Frogger or Donkey Kong or Pac-Man or Berserker or Missile Command, whatever it is, and you're kicking butt. But what happens when your older brother comes and he takes your joystick from you and he beats your high score? All of a sudden, you're not so joyful anymore, right? You take that joystick, you throw it against the wall, it breaks, and all of a sudden, your joy is gone. As you get older, you realize it's not about Happy Meals, it's not about joysticks. What is it? It's about stealing your parents' car. Going out for a joyride, right? Here you go. And everything is going great again until you get into a car accident or the cops catch you or your parents catch you. All of a sudden, that joy is no longer there. You get older, right? You get to working age, had a hard day at work. What do you do? Oh, my gosh, this is, this is the worst day ever. I didn't meet my deadline. My boss is angry at me. I'm having fights with my coworker. What do I do? Hey, come on, let's, just, let's go out to happy hour. Let's drink it away, right? Happy hour. Here we go. We realize that after an hour, the happiness is gone. But the lie that our world tells us is, hey, your joy and your happiness is tied to your present moment. And if you don't have it now, then you're not going to have it. It's all about what's going on in the present. But then you read the Bible and it tells a completely different story. You, you, you hear about somebody like Stephen, one of the first original deacons from Acts chapter 6. And as he lives in the midst of persecution, he was the first one. He was the first person who was martyred for his faith in Jesus Christ. And it says, as he was being stoned, as he was being killed, there was a joy that shone on his face. His face shone as if he was an angel. And there was this joy on his face, even though his body was being destroyed. 
You read about people like the Apostle Paul who in a jail cell wrote the, he wrote probably the main biblical treatise on joy, the letter to the Philippians, while he was in jail, chained to Roman guards. Half of the epistles, half of the letters that Paul wrote were written while he was in jail. And he was encouraging his people to hope and to have joy and to rejoice in the Lord, to choose to be joyful. You look at Jesus Christ as he was going towards the cross in the, uh, the book of Hebrews, the letter of Hebrews says that for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. Forgetting about the shame, he endured the cross. Why? Because the writers of the Bible are telling us the same thing that the writer of the Psalms is telling us, that joy is not tied to your present circumstances. That joy is not about what's going on right now. It's not about the fact that you're climbing up this mountain is extremely difficult. It's not about the fact that you're giving and giving and giving and giving and you seem to be no fruit. That's not what joy is about. Your joy is not tied to what's going on right now. In fact, your joy comes by looking back to the past and looking forward to the future. Right? We're going to work with this as we move on to the next point. But the first thing to make clear about is that joy is not about what's going on right now. And your joy is not contingent upon your present circumstance. That's the first thing that we have to understand. And hopefully that gives a little bit of freedom because not all of us are going through great times right now. But there is an undercurrent of joy that could be yours, that could be ours, even in the midst of horrific present circumstances. That's the first thing that we have to see. The second thing then, the second thing is this, that joy is about what God has done in the past, not about what we are doing right now. Joy is about what God has done in the past, not about what you're doing right now, because what you're doing right now could lead very well to you being depressed and downtrodden and realizing, you know what, there's nothing for me to be joyful about when you look simply at what you're doing. It says here uh, in verse 1, when the Lord brought back the captives to Zion, okay, this is in 539 BC, we were like men who dreamed. Our mouths are filled with laughter. Our tongues with songs of joy. It was said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us, and we are filled with joy. You ever sit with your friends and just kind of kick back and, and relive and think about the good old times? I know there's, you know, whenever some group of guys get together in our congregation, they just start talking about the funny things that have happened. And they laugh and they laugh and they laugh. And, and people who've been with them, long enough realize that this is the same story they've been telling over and over and over again. They talk about it every week, and yet they still laugh about it. Why? Today, uh, Olivia and I, my wife and I, are celebrating an, an anniversary, and I was thinking, I've been thinking this past week about um, the day we got married and what that was like, and thinking about our, our honeymoon in, in Hawaii and all of the things that we did. I thought about our one-year anniversary and what we did when we went out to, to St. Augustine and we rode these rickety bikes along the oldest city in America. I, I thought about our second anniversary and how we spent a, a couple nights at an inn in Lake Eola, just hanging out and, and just enjoying time. I thought about our third-year anniversary. We went out to Clearwater Beach right before um, Manny was born. Fourth year, fifth year. And I was thinking about these things. I was thinking about times with, with Olive when, when she, doesn't, uh, she doesn't know, but she's singing karaoke and she's just going all out. And she's just like filled with this exuberant sense of happiness and, and excitement. I think about when she doesn't think anyone is watching, but she's dancing and doing all of her breakdance moves, and she's so excited about it. I think about these things. Why? Because as I think about these things, it takes me back to another time and place where I, I, that same excitement that I felt when I was there in that moment begins to flood my heart again, and I'm filled with wonder and gratitude 
towards God for the one that I have pledged to love with all of my life until my dying breath. I think about these things. I relive these moments because the same emotions that I felt in that moment, I can feel again as I relive and I replay these moments now. Isn't that why we talk about these things? Isn't that why we think about these things? Isn't that why we reminisce and replay and relive and rehearse these great moments of the past? Think about those times, the most embarrassing moment of your life, and you you cringe to think about it because you feel the same embarrassment now as you did in that moment when your pants fell down and you look like a fool with your pants on the ground. Or (laughs) you think about that, that moment where for the first time in your life, Somebody told you that they loved you and the tingles that went down your spine and the warmth that filled your heart. And as you think about that and as you relive that, that that same feeling that flooded your heart begins to come back to you. This is what the psalmist is doing here. He's talking about the time when they were just ravaged and pillaged in 586 BC. They were taken into Babylon and their entire world was flipped upside down. Imagine a a, a marauding group of invaders coming and taking us from your home here in Orlando, uprooting you, separating from your family, and taking you into the midst of a nasty, nasty nation. And for 40-some years, you're separated from your family, you're separated from your school, your friends, your loved ones, your your houses, your lands, your business, all of these things, and you're, you're in a foreign land eating foreign foods, trying to learn foreign uh, languages, and you're just enslaved to the meanest people in the world at the time, the Babylonians. As they're sitting in the midst of that, in 539 BC, the edict is given from Cyrus of Persia, go back to your land. And he's saying, when the Lord brought back the captives to Zion, it was like a dream come true. Our mouths were filled with laughter. Our tongues with songs of joy. He says, the nation said, God's done amazing things. And as he stops He thinks in verse 3, and he says, the Lord has done great things for us. And we are filled with joy. I wonder if some of our lives, if we were to think about them, or if other people were to look at them, if they would characterize our lives by being filled with joy. If they are not, if for some of us, Joy is sometimes difficult to come by. Maybe the prescription that God is giving is, hey, just take some time and relive those moments of your life. When we too were released from our captivity to the slavery of sin. Think about the moment when you first fell in love with Jesus. Think about when the love of God first opened your eyes to see the wonder and the worth of our God. Think about the time when you first realized that all of your sins were washed away, that all of the things you've done in your past, all of your sins, all of your crimes, all of your shame is forever wiped out from your life, never to be held against you, never to be brought up in the court of God ever again. That first time when you realized that that all of your mistakes and all of your failures, though your sin was deeper than the sea, His love went deeper still to reach out to you and to bury that in the sea of forgetfulness for all time. That first time when you realize that, it's why Shane and Shane say, when I think about the Lord, how he saved me, how he raised me, how he filled me with the Holy Ghost, how he healed me to the uttermost. When I think about the Lord, how he picked me up and turned me around, how he set my feet on solid ground. 
it makes me want to shout. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Lord, you're worthy of all the glory. When was the last time we thought about those moments in our lives? Go back to first love when God changed us, when he freed us from sin, when he set us free from those addictions, when he gave us victory over our past. Those times when those prayers were answered and the joy that you felt and when that that illness that you had was healed. Go back to those moments. Our joy is not about what's going on right now. It's not tied to our present situation, but it's always about what God has done, not about what we're doing here. And God's saying, remember, rehearse, relive, reminisce, go back to those times. Let those same, that same joy that flooded your soul then remind you and renew you all over again. And that's the second thing. The third thing that we see here is that joy and suffering cannot be separated. Joy and suffering cannot be separated. It says in, in verse 5, Those who sow in tears will reap with songs of joy. He who goes out weeping, carrying seed to sow, will return with songs of joy, carrying sheaves with him. The message of Psalm 126 is that if you want to sing the songs of joy, you've got to invest in the seed of tears. There is no joy unless there's suffering. And this is a universal principle in all of life. I was reminded of this last week as we were out on vacation. So my, my uh, children, Manny and Elijah, they have this um, relationship where um, Manny loves Elijah. She loves him to death, but she has a very difficult, because she's, she's a little bit socially awkward because she's still young. She has a little bit difficult time uh, expressing her love in a way that Elijah understands. And so she basically smothers him with love, right? So she kisses him until he starts crying. And she's like, why is he crying? And doesn't understand. A couple of weeks back, we were um, making a fort. And um, Manny thought it'd be great if we could bring Elijah in and said, let's have Elijah come in and, and play with us as well. And so brought Elijah in and propped him up against the, the sofa. And I thought, this is going to be a great picture here. And so as I was taking the picture, I, I ran. I said, I could do this in like five seconds. So I ran. And as <laughs> I was running to take a picture, Elijah was sitting there and he doesn't have control over his body. So he just kind of like toppled over onto his side. And Manny thought it was the funniest thing. And she's like laughing and laughing and laughing. She's like, let's do it again. Let's make Elijah fall over again and she thought it was so funny and and I, I didn't think it was a great idea but that's kind of the way that their relationship is but last week as we were hanging out on the Oregon coast they had this moment together it was beautiful Elijah was laying down as he can't do much else he was just lying down and he's like kicking his legs and 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 his arms and stuff I just snorted but <laughs> he's doing these things that's what Elijah was doing okay so he's making this noise bad safe but that's what's happening. So Elijah's kicking and he's like laughing and Manny goes up to him and she kisses him and she says, oh baby, and she kisses him. And then Elijah reaches up his hand. I don't know what he's thinking, what he's doing, but he touched Manny with his fist on her cheek and she got really excited about that. She saw that as a sign of love and she said, ooh, daddy, Elijah touched me. And I said, oh, you know, that's great. And then she has this like moment and she's been saying this a little bit lately. She said, daddy, I want another baby. And so um, thinking about it, I'm like, all right, that's cool. You know, you don't really know what you're talking about, don't know what you're asking, don't know all that it goes into making another one of these things. But then she thought about it for a second, and then like, her, her like, smile turned to like, this, this sadness. 
And I'm trying to process what's, I'm trying to think what she's processing in her mind. And, but she, this is what she said. And this is like so profound. She said, but if we have another baby, then mommy's stomach is going to hurt again. And I thought, yeah, that's a perfect picture of the reality of life. Is that in order for her to experience the joy, right, there has to be suffering. Because suffering and joy are always related. If you want to know the joy of bringing in a harvest, then you've got to know the, jo- the, the suffering and the tears and the sorrow of investing into the ground. It says here, those who sow in tears. Why do they sow in tears? You ever see a farmer going, as <laughs> they sow seed? <laughs> Why are they sowing in tears? It's weird. For one, it's because farming is hard work. And there are times they, they have to, not times, but they always need to till the ground. They've got to plow into the ground. And sometimes in the midst of of just a, a heavy beating sun on them. This is hard work as they, as they till the ground, as they pull up the weeds, as they sow the seeds. They don't know what's going to happen. But to do the work of farming, it's hard work, and they're sowing in tears because they know that this work is hard. And I know that many, many times investing into the harvest is not easy work. I think about sometimes when I meet with our teachers or I meet with our shepherds, or I meet with people who are praying for their, uh, for their friends who don't know the Lord, their friends who are broken, and, and they just want them to know the hope of Christ. And, and how many times I've sat across people who sometimes with tears say, I don't know if it's worth it to do this anymore. Right, we're just go giving and giving and giving. Their hearts are so hard. They don't appreciate us. They don't understand the things that we do. Right, maybe we should just quit. Maybe we should just stop. I don't know if it's worth it to do this. You ever felt like that as you minister for the sake of the harvest? Wondering, is this really what I've been called to? Is this really what I'm supposed to be doing? And maybe someone else is is better to do it. Saying we sow in tears because the work is hard. Sometimes in my darkest, most depressing, most discouraged, most downcast, downtrodden moments. And I've had these moments in the past. I say to Olive, I, I don't know, man. I don't know if I want to do this. I don't know if I want to do this, Olive. Frankly, I don't know. I'm sick and tired of dealing with my own sin. And, and it's hard dealing with the sins of other people and how lives are messed up and how lives are broken because of it. And sometimes I say, Olive, why don't I, I'll just, I'll just stop this. I'll go somewhere and become a professor. I'll become a teacher somewhere. And she says, you know what? If that's God's call for your life, then I will follow you to your grave. But somehow, I don't think that's what God is calling you to. I believe that you are made for this. I believe that you are born for this. I believe that you are created to do this thing that you're doing. And if God's call is for you to stop and do something else, then so be it. But I believe with all my heart that if you're called to do this and you're quitting, then you're going to be selling yourself short and selling other people short. Because I believe that this is what you're called to do. Though sorrow may last for the night, joy comes in the morning. And I'm reminded that the only way there's going to be fruit in the harvest is if we sow the seed of tears. Any house church shepherd who wants to make a difference in the lives of your people in this world 
You're going to have to go to the mat and fight and sow the seed of tears. Any Sunday school teacher, you want to make a difference in the lives of children, in the lives of high schoolers, in the lives of middle schoolers, then you've got to fight, and oftentimes it will be with tears. You will be misunderstood. You will feel like giving up. You will ask yourself, is it worth it for me to do all of these things? But it's hard work. And in order for there to be joy in the morning, there's got to be sowing of seeds of tears at night. And so they go out sowing the seed of tears because it's hard work. But the other reason they go out sowing seeds of tears is because they're literally throwing out everything that they've got. There's nothing left that they're holding back. Everything that they've got is being invested into the ground for the hope that one day there will be a harvest. And in order for there to be a joyful reaping, of souls being saved, of lives being changed, of disciples being made, that at some point we've got to realize that everything I am for your kingdom's cause, God, I'm, get, I'm laying it all down on the line in order that there might be fruit. I think about uh, our, our workers in Egypt, and I think about the fact that they've left everything behind in order to pursue the call of God in the midst of a country that is going through such political turmoil where the Muslim Brotherhood has taken over and Christians are being persecuted for their faith, into that situation, they went back into their country and they said, Egypt needs to know the gospel of Jesus Christ. And they're training up and working up, raising up workers to go out into the mission field. I think about as I, they, they spent a, almost a year in America renewing, refueling because they've been so beat up by the ministry. And their kids are running around in fields of green and, and they're thinking, Dad, if there's one thing I want, the only thing I want is for a yard to play in. And they go back to their home in Egypt in this tiny apartment. There's no yard. And they realize that for the sake of the call of God, and for the sake of the harvest field, they've left everything behind. I think about my friend Daniel who's out in California. And when he was going into the ministry, his father said to him, I don't care if you and Judy go hunger, go, go, uh, go hungry. I don't care if you guys are homeless because you can't eat because the ministry can't afford to give you a life, uh, 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 can't afford to pay your lifestyle. But I don't want your kids to go hungry. I don't want your kids to suffer. I think about my generation when we were going into ministry. Every parent would say, that's great for the other person's kids, but I don't want that for my kids. Someone hears, oh, your, your friend, your friend's son is going to become a pastor. Oh, that's amazing. That's awesome. Praise God. Bless them. When they hear their own son is going into ministry, they say, no, 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 not you. Someone else can suffer, but not you. I think about why is it that they're sowing in tears? Because not only is it hard work, but they're giving up everything that they've got. And I think about our people who are in the front lines, serving God, faithfully seeking to make a difference realizing that so many times they've given up everything and they come to church weary, they come to church tired. I think about some of our shepherds. I think about one of our old shepherds. He would fall asleep during his own house church meetings because he's been up since four in the morning working and working and he's dead tired. And his members would say, HK Lim, why don't you cancel your meeting today? And he says, no, I can't. No matter how tired I am, I'm going to invest into my people. I'm going to love them. And these members see him falling asleep as he's leading his own house church meeting. And they say, this is how much he loves us. This is how much he cares about us. 
It's giving everything that he has for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of the harvest. If we want to see a reaping, right? We talk about the people we want to see come to faith in Christ. We talk about the people that we want to see them become fully devoted followers, disciples of Jesus Christ. There will not be a reaping in joy unless there's a sowing in tears. Because joy and suffering can never be separated. But my question is, are we so caught up in the suffering of today that we don't realize the future harvest that is coming. The promise of Psalm 126, those who sow in tears will reap with songs of joy. He who goes out weeping, carrying seed to sow, will return with songs of joy, carrying sheaves with him. Imagine four months later, the joy at that first harvest when they see crops come up. And the joy of running through the fields as they pick the crops and they realize that everything that we've invested into, there's fruit, there's a harvest, there's crops, there's a return. It was all worth it when they see the joy on the face of themselves and their family as they reap in the harvest. You want that kind of a joy, there's got to be that kind of a sowing. And the promise of God is that it is there and it is available for any who would go, for any who would go forth, but that you would realize that this is the call and this is the cost. The last thing, God often surprises us with unexpected fruit. It's one thing to know that you're going to have fruit, but it's another thing, a wholly other thing, totally different thing when that fruit is unexpected. Tomorrow, um, our daughter turns three years old. Manny turns three. And so when we were out in, in Oregon, um, her uncle and aunt wanted to throw her um, a little bit of a, a little birthday party. And so they got her a cake and they put three candles in it. And, and so I was uh, taking Manny off to a, a different room while they got it ready. And we're just talking about different things. I don't remember what we're talking about. And all of a sudden, the lights started going out. And Manny said, if it's starting to get dark, it must be someone's birthday. Right? She's been around birthday parties enough to know. And I was like, oh, shoot, the surprise is ruined. So I said, whose birthday is it? And she said, maybe it's auntie's birthday. So she didn't know. So I'm like, okay, that's good. We brought her in, sat her in front of the cake with three candles. And we said, Manny, this is for your birthday. She's like, my birthday? And then everyone started singing happy birthday. And this is just this awkward thing where she doesn't know what to do. And everyone's staring at her singing. She's just like looking at the cake, fidgeting around. She realized, Wow. What an amazing thing it is. Isn't it the best thing when you have a party, you have a cake, but the unexpected, the surprising ones are the best. It's like when you find, I say this all the time, when you find $5 in those pants that you haven't worn since last year. Even better when you find $20, right? That's even better. Or when you've got this $19.99, oh my gosh, it was $100, $19.99 jacket, and you go to pay for it, and they ring it up, $3.99. What? I thought it was $19.99. No, no, no. It's on an even bigger sale. 85, 90% off of that. Oh my gosh, this is great. Whatever it might be, these unexpected surprises in life. What is he talking about here? Verse 4. You could, you'll miss it if you don't get it. Verse 4. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. What the heck does that mean? Well, I'm going to explain it to you. The Negev was a desert. Dry desolate, barren land, would not rain there, except for one time a year. One time a year, 
this it was i mean they came to be expected because it happened every year but it was unexpected in the midst of a desert this rain would fall for just a day or two and it would flood the waterbed and within days this beautiful out just this this fresh outbreak of flowers would line the desert and in the most unexpected of ways nobody sowed seeds there nobody planted anything there it's just sheerly by the grace of god we didn't do anything but we look out and we see the beauty of fruit being born there are times my friends when there is grace in the Negev for you and for me. Times where we completely were blindsided. Somebody comes up to us and they say, hey, you know what? Um, I'm ready to give my life to Jesus. You're like, what? There, how, could, how could that be? Or someone comes up here, they share a testimony. And you're thinking, oh my gosh, I feel so bad about all the times they called me and I neglected them. I didn't answer their, their phone call. And, and as they're sharing their testimony, they say, at the end, they say, you know what? And I just want to thank one person for investing in me, for believing in me, for giving me unconditional love. And they say your name. And you're like, what? There's grace in the desert. There's times where you felt like you just led the worst worship set of your life, where you preached the worst sermon of your life. You, t- you just led the worst Bible study of your life. House church meeting completely flopped. Nobody came. Everybody was just, they were out of it. They were falling asleep. And one person says, you know what? This was a day that changed my life. And there is grace for you. God never shows you or me the full extent of how we're being used because we would get proud. And we would think, God, this is all about me. But there's grace in the desert enough to encourage you to let you know that he's working even when you think he's not. I pray that you would be surprised often by this kind of grace. Unexpected blessings. Man, that there would be people in heaven because of you and you would have no idea when you stand before God and God points out this person. He said, you see that person over there? He said he came because of your referral. I don't even know who that guy is. And God's like, but he knows who you are. Because through your life, his life was changed. Could there be anything more rewarding in this life and in the life to come worth giving ourselves to? The grace of the Negev is that we reap where we did not even sow. And that grace is the current that runs throughout Scripture. Because Jesus Christ is the man of Psalm 126. He's the man of every psalm. But he's the man of Psalm 126. He reaped the destruction. And Eugene talks about the fact that we sow either to please our flesh that leads to destruction so to please the Spirit, which leads to life. We sowed to please our flesh, but Jesus Christ reaped the destruction that you and I deserved. On the cross, he took our punishment for himself, upon himself, so that we could reap in the blessing that we did not deserve, the blessing that we did not sow in, the blessing that we did not invest in. 
Right? This is the grace of God that surprises us the moment we realize when we're in heaven, what in the world am I doing here? I did not deserve it. And God will say it's only by the grace of Jesus Christ. And as we think about that, we realize this is the grace that not only saved my life, but the grace that continues to run throughout it. As they used to say, there's only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Let's pray. Let's take a moment to pray to the Lord. Maybe uh, some of us, we need to get back in the ball game. We've been burned. We've been tired. We've been burnt out. We've been fried. I think, man, sometimes we quit right before the season of joy comes because the suffering has been too much for us. We give in, we give up, and maybe we're just a step away from the joy that was to come. Maybe for some of us, God's saying, hey, get back in the game. Get back in it. I'm not done. There's grace in the Negev, and there's joy in the morning. Maybe for some of us, we're not yet followers of Jesus Christ. And God is saying, hey, you want to begin this journey? Perhaps you've been sowing to please your spirit. I'm sorry, to please yourself. At the cross, Jesus Christ died for your sins and for mine. And that when we put our faith in him to say, would you be my new master? Would you be my new Lord? Be my savior. Be my forgiver. We can enter into a new relationship with him and have new life that is promised to us. A life that is full of of moments of joy. Let's take a minute or two right now just to pray to the Lord as we respond to his word. Let's ask the Lord God to really awaken us to see the bigger picture. Joy is not about what we're doing right now, looking in the past, looking forward to the future, and realizing the grace, the future grace that is to come. So let's take a moment right now to pray to the Lord. Uh, Just lead us to praying for one more thing as we prepare to come to the table before after that. So let's just, let's pray as we respond to the word of God.